Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As we begin our October editions of Political Rewind, we have some real academic high-powered people on the show today. I'm very excited about that. I'm Bill Nyga. Glad to have you with us on this first Monday in October. The U.S. Supreme Court goes into session, as it traditionally does, on the first Monday of October every year. We're going to get to that in a little while. But let me introduce the panel. Patricia Murphy, uh, reporter and uh, uh, columnist, who writes the Political Insider column in uh, the AJC. If you read the hard copy newspaper, you get it on Wednesdays and Sundays, but you can also pick it up on AJC.com uh, if you are a subscriber. And Patricia also oversees the Jolt, which again is on AJC.com. A uh, great summary of the highlighted stories in the political news of the day. Hi, Patricia. Thanks for being here today. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. I love that it is a power of high, it's a panel of high-powered academics and me. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I, as a college dropout, I refuse to be too intimidated, <laughs> but I'm going to do my best to get Sounds it good. through. Let, let me welcome uh, everybody else to the show uh, today. We're really glad to have Kendra king Maman uh, back with us. She's a professor of politics at Oglethorpe University, but Kendra, to add to that, you're also associate provost of the university. Um, would you do me a favor? What does it mean to be, what is a provost's real role at a university campus? Sure, so the role of the provost is the chief academic officer. My role is associate provost. I serve and assist um, the provost and I oversee um, some academic programming related to uh, student appeals and things of that nature, but I also get to uh, oversee um, our new faculty mentoring program that we've developed this year. So uh, it's a variety of hats that, that I wear um, to help support the overall mission of the university. Well, we're very happy to have you back with us. Thanks for joining us today. Alan Abramowitz is back. He's a professor emeritus at Emory University, taught political science there for many years. Now, uh, trying to slow down a bit, Alan Abramowitz, but you're still so engaged in politics that I don't know that you're ever going to really be able to um, slow down your interests, Alan. <laughs> oh, it's, it's just too much interesting stuff going on. Uh, this is a, such a fascinating time heading toward these midterm elections. And I'm glad to find out, after all these years in academia, what a provost does. Oh, I'm glad to hear that you, as a, <laughs> a university professor, wonder. <laughs> Fred Smith is back with us as well, a professor of political science at Emory University, of, of constitutional law. Sorry, Fred. Fred, this is truly your season with the Supreme Court going back into session today. Yeah, this is quite a day. Uh, I mean, at 9.30 this morning, the Supreme Court is going to announce uh, the lot of cases <laughs> that it's decided mm -hmm. to hear, and we don't know what they are yet. Um, so... Uh, it's a it's a big day for the court and for that reason for the nation. Well, we're going to get to um, the Supreme Court in a little while, but Patricia, I really think there's no other way to start today's show uh, uh, without uh, talking about a very important decision 
made by a federal district court judge, Steve Jones. He ruled last Friday that a almost four-year-long lawsuit brought in the aftermath of uh, Stacey Abrams' loss in the 2018 election, uh, challenging and claiming that uh, Georgia's um, voter registration, absentee ballot procedures were all uh, potentially disenfranchising voters who would probably, minority voters who would tend to be uh, Democratic voters. Fair Fight Action has uh, been uh, actively promoting this case for four years since that election. Steve Jones on Friday, an Obama appointee to the federal bench, uh, threw out virtually everything they had said uh, had happened in the run-up to 2018. Patricia? Yeah, and this lawsuit was filed three weeks after Stacey Abrams lost to Governor Brian Kemp in 2018 and alleged a series of um, not just irregularities, but structural and systemic processes that they said essentially violated the Civil Rights Act and also disenfranchised voters um, and could have uh, had an effect on the election. Um, and this ruling from Steve Jones rejected just about all of the arguments, in fact, all of the arguments from Fair Fight. And Fair Fight is the political organization that Stacey Abrams began and founded, and it really is seen as sort of the uh, parallel political effort to all of her other um, all of her other actual electoral efforts here in the state. And um, in his ruling, he said that uh, the 2018 elections and the processes behind it, that it violated neither the Constitution nor the Voting Rights Act. Uh, he said that the Georgia election system is not perfect, but it's also not unconstitutional. Uh, he also said a problem with the case is that they never produced a voter who could say, yes, I tried to vote and I could not vote for these reasons. They had alleged um, that uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, voters uh, were challenged and many of those were not able to vote as a result, but they never produced a person to say this was me and I couldn't vote. Um, for, for those of us covering the election at the time, that was also a problem that we had in reporting out Fair Fight's allegations about the elections heading into 2018, they would say, well, this 87,000 people have been disenfranchised, and we know that. And I said, well, can I talk to them? And then any of those voters that I talked to said, well, actually, I was able to resolve that, so I know that I am registered now. Um, it's not saying that it's not true. It's that I never could find a person, and the judge said he was never presented with a person who said affirmatively, this is, I am an example of all of these problems with the election. And um, obviously, there, it's had huge recriminations in the race itself because this is a rematch between Kemp and uh, Stacey Abrams heading into November. Yeah, um, Alan, uh, uh, the, uh, the biggest uh, uh, concerns expressed by Fair Fight in their lawsuit were over exact match, which requires mm. people filing absentee ballots uh, requests to have the exact same uh, way that they spell right. their names, uh, you know, da hyphens in a name or whatever. Um, and then, and, and that led to uh, absentee ballot cancellations. They also were concerned about uh, polling places which had hours-long lines. But as Patricia said, one of the problems with this is that even though they produced witnesses, um, it was unclear that any of these things that the Secretary of State's office or the legislature put in place were in fact preventing people from finally casting ballots, even though some of them had to jump through hoops to do it. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And, um, you know, there's no question that um, there were some problems with exact match. Um, some people who are definitely legitimate voters were taken off the rolls. Um, but when you look overall at what happened in the 2018 election in Georgia and across the country, what you see is an election in which there was extraordinarily high turnout. And there was also very high turnout among African-American voters in that election. That doesn't necessarily mean that there weren't problems, um, but it just seems like um, whatever they were, they didn't prevent uh, large numbers of people from voting. And I think that's what the, the judge was basically saying here is that show me the voters who were prevented from voting by any of these practices in, you know, in the end. And not being able to do that, I think, was uh, really the downfall of this case. Kendra, um, the Abrams campaign and Abrams herself have not made as big an issue out of voting laws or regulations in this state that have suppressed votes in the past as they did in 2018. And of course, at that point, they were running against a Brian Kemp who refused to step down as Secretary of State, a, a position in which he oversaw the elections. This time around, that hasn't been, despite four years of fighting this lawsuit, um, they, that has not been a central point in the campaign. Um, but it, this decision comes five weeks before the election. Uh, Kemp has jumped on it. Here's a quote uh, that he uh, sent out in a tweet. From day one, Abrams has used this lawsuit to line her pockets, so distrust in our democratic institutions, build her own celebrity. Judge Jones' ruling exposes this legal effort for what it really is, a tool wielded by a politician hoping to wrongfully weaponize the legal system to further her own political goals. That's a, a, a strong punch. Um, how do you think this, this affects voters as they move toward Election Day? I think undoubtedly this is going to um, just give more momentum and galvanize um, those who are Kemp supporters and supporters of the Republican Party. Uh, this is not a good look um, holistically based upon everything my colleagues have shared. Um, I, I think two things that we should pause on that, that everyone is saying. Um, the language used is that there was no deliberate uh, discrimination going on, no deliberate um, intention to to deny voters their right to vote. But I think we have to acknowledge uh, that in our state, there are, and there were at least in 2018, some antiquated systems um, that have been updated. I believe um, Judge Jones says that there were wins and losses in this case for all parties. Mm -hmm. So I, I do want to acknowledge that for the record. I, I think this is a blow uh, to the Abrams campaign um, in, in terms of integrity, in terms of trust, um, and I think what makes this telling, uh, I saw Patricia with that, that, that kind of uh, aha uh -huh there, I think what makes this really telling is the fact that the inability to produce one voter out of 87,000, let's say even out of 100,000, uh, that's going to fall flat, and I think that's going to hurt the Abrams campaign. So um, if, if I were them, I'd be, I would be trying to figure out how to um, fix this quickly uh, and without that tongue-in-cheek politics that we know that sometimes the Abrams campaign is um, associated with. Fred, mm -hmm. uh, the Abrams campaign and Stacey Abrams herself, on the other hand, have argued that there were victories, uh, perhaps not in Steve Jones' courtroom, but uh, exact match has been modified uh, since the 2018 election. I think they would probably argue that calling attention to uh, uh, polling places that were overrun with voters who, who spent hours waiting to get to cast ballots uh, has been 
looked at and and will be you know modified and it, it was better in 2020 probably better in 2022 so they're making the best of the situation that they possibly can fred sure so they're pointing out ways in which uh, since the filing of this lawsuit um, a number of things have changed and sometimes this happens in litigation that goes for a long period of time um, where the filing of the lawsuit uh, ends up fixing a lot of the problems uh, and by the time you uh, get from the beginning of the lawsuit to the end of the lawsuit um, you're, you're in a different setting and so this, this actually happened almost 20 years ago with respect to the voter ID laws where uh, the Georgia legislature uh, ruled that, that, that concluded not only that one needed a, an ID to vote, but also increased the amount of money that it cost to get that ID, right? Uh, and so a lawsuit was filed on a poll tax theory. The court, uh, the Northern District of Georgia, indicated that it was concerned about that poll tax. That ended up being fixed. <laughs> the Georgia legislature made it made the IDs available for free, and by the time you get to the end of the lawsuit, the answer is, okay, well, now it's not illegal. Um, I also wonder if, to the extent to which uh, the Fair Fight organization was a victim of its own success because they were identifying these individuals. They were actively reaching out to them. Their goal, their initial goal was not to have someone to have standing to file a lawsuit. It was to make sure that people could vote, right? And so at least the people who they could identify, all the, 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 you know, the whole category of people who they could identify, they reached out to and helped make sure that they, in fact, could vote. Uh, and so that's, you know, it's, it's um, you know, it, it, it's tricky <laughs> um, because you know, from a legal standpoint, though, that means uh, it's harder to uh, to make the burden uh, apparent. Yeah, Bill, I think both of those points are so important that Fred makes. Um, first of all, when you hear about Stacey Abrams' ground game, like her legendary ground game heading into the 2020 election, a huge amount of that was voter education and telling voters all of the ways they need to work harder to uh, come into compliance with a lot of these laws in Georgia. Um, and so that told voters, you need to do X, Y, and Z in order to comply with that exact signature match. Um, it also put a huge amount of public pressure on Brad Raffensperger's office heading into the 2020 um, elections where they knew they could not have long lines in 2020. It would be unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And so Raffensperger's office put up an entire sort of multi um, multimedia platform in the Secretary of State's office, a dashboard where they could see any lines over five to 10 minutes. Was that just because Brad Raffensperger thought that was a good thing to do? Yes, but also they could not have those long lines again after all of the pressure fair fight put on them. It also pushed Raffensperger to enter into what Republicans call the consent decree, like this <laughs> famous agreement that his office um, came to with uh, Fair Fight in saying that if there is a signature that's tossed out, you need to give that voter time to resubmit an additional either an, another signature or additional evidence. Now that got Raffensperger in huge trouble with Donald Trump because he said that, hey, that's the whole reason I lost. I, well, he doesn't say he lost. He said, that's a big reason I don't trust Brad Raffensperger is because he did this agreement with Stacey Abrams. Actually, it was with Fair Fight. But uh, Fair Fight was able to put so much pressure on Raffensperger and Republicans that I think it did change the contours of how elections were conducted um, in a way that made their lawsuit harder for the judge to agree with in the end. Ellen? So uh, I want to come back to the question about the, what, what might be the kind of political fallout 
from this decision. Um, and I think it's important to keep in mind that here we are, we're five weeks out uh, from election day. Early voting is going to begin very soon. Um, I think the good news for the Abrams campaign is that this is unlikely to have much impact on the election. Um, you know, this is a state in which the electorate is extremely polarized. Um, the vast majority of voters, ha- you know, have their minds made up, have had their minds made up, you know, for, for a long time. Um, there are relatively few undecided or persuadable voters out there. Um, so it's certainly not helpful um, to the Abrams campaign. I don't think it's going to have much impact. Now, that said, you know, it, it, it looks like if you look at the polling, that she's trailing. You know, she's got some ground to make up, um, at least a few percentage points of ground. And this is not going to, you know, this decision is certainly not going to help help her to do that. So they, they need to come back, I think, and make these claims and, re, you know, remind voters of what they did accomplish, um, as we've been talking about. Um, but in the end, I, d- I don't see it as a game changer in any way. But Kendra, I suspect that's what you were suggesting in your it's it's not just this ruling by the court. It's that that there seems to be whether the polling is uh, predicting a Kemp victory or not. It it's still a very, very close race. This is another element that seems to suggest the momentum is moving, has moved in Kemp's favor. But but one of the issues there, it strikes me, Kendra, is uh, that. The headline, Abrams loses, fair fight loses, is more powerful than the more subtle, art, loses the, the lawsuit, is the argument uh, that, that Patricia and Fred made, which is fair fight accomplished an enormous amount in getting voters who had obstacles to the polls to vote. That's a harder message than uh, Abrams loses voting rights lawsuit. Absolutely. I mean, the end goal and the end game of politics anyways, uh, education and empowerment, right? So that I, as a voter, can can be informed and make the right decision. Without a doubt, fair fight, Stacey Abrams did that. You're not going to, to get any clickbait uh, uh, saying that um, in terms of, you know, um, Abrams empowered um, and educated, you know, a million voters in the state of Georgia, and we'll see that come out. I, I think, again, this election, and we talked about it a while ago before, this election has been marred with these um, interesting sound bites that are used um, more often than not against the Abrams campaign. And so I think right now, with these five weeks left, her campaign has to go on the offensive um, with with a laundry list of everything they have done from 2018 to 2022. And they've got to engage in wraparound voting for their primary constituency groups, um, which includes older African-Americans. I think what, what you're going to see also, um, perhaps is some more political alignment and campaigning in terms of some of the Democratic front runners, um, so that we can get some block voting going on in terms of those those uh, particular races. Because there's going to have to be some um, piggyback momentum um, and some rally around the flag in terms of name recognition in order uh, to close that gap that's currently there. Um, all right, I, I, let's do this. Um... Let's get our first break of the show out of the way a little bit early, um, because I really do want to turn our attention for the next few minutes to the Supreme Court. And um, we can do that uh, after these messages. You're listening to Political Rewind.
Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Constitutional law professor Fred Smith, professor of politics Kendra king Maman, and professor emeritus of political science Eleanor Bromwitz join us along with Patricia Murphy from the AJC. Uh, uh, the court uh, begins its session today, Patricia. There are going to be some really, really crucial issues taken up in the weeks and months ahead. We're going to get a case on affirmative actions at uh, university in university settings, uh, of Harvard and the University of North Carolina. There will be gay rights uh, uh, at, in the balance, some, some issues relating to gay rights in the balance. Um, we've got this huge election case, which is the one I'd really like to look at uh, today. We'll certainly have a chance in the weeks and months ahead to talk about any number of other cases. But the point is, the concern is that this court will continue its move to the right, which became so apparent with the 6-3 supermajority of Republican-appointed justices leading to the uh, overturning of Roe, uh, the, the decision that came at the end of the last session. And Patricia, um, just to make a point, uh, just this past week, Gallup released its most recent poll on faith in the Supreme Court, and 58% of Americans said they disapprove of the job the Supreme Court is doing. It's the highest rate since the year 2000, which was the first year that Gallup posed the question. And even the justices themselves, Patricia, are arguing about whether the court is an instrument of partisan politics uh, rather than uh, 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 doing its judicial duty. Patricia? Yeah, I think that um, above and beyond uh, how the justices rule on any of these individual cases, the trust in the court coming out of this session is going to be the most important thing that we um, can take away from it uh, because uh, people's trust in the court is so paramount in order for it to have checks and balances over the other two branches of government, including White House and the Congress. And so if the judicial branch, which um, you know previously had been seen as sort of the more trustworthy of the two, especially as uh, the White House and Congress have become to see to be seen as so partisan, um, a Supreme Court decision could come down and sort of resolve uh, outlying issues between those other two branches. And so to me, it's just hugely concerning. And if you go back to the 2000 election um, and the Supreme Court's role in deciding that election, um, if we don't have a Supreme Court that Americans can trust and we have these huge major issues coming out before it, um, the kind of the consent of the governed really starts to come into question at that point. So I have huge, uh, of all the things that worry me right now, people's lack and trust of the Supreme Court um, and the uh, and the new makeup of the court and the unpredictability of the court, I think, is one of the really biggest ones that I worry about. Fred, before we start talking about the this election case, which could have profound ramifications uh, in federal elections, um, let, let's talk a little bit more about this uh, uh, feeling that the court has become overly politicized. You were a clerk for Justice Sonia Sotomayor. 
So I assume that you are watching the uh, the bickering, uh, the really kind of uh, angry back and forth among justices uh, more closely than some of us uh, might be. Um, for instance, uh, Justice Kagan uh, said very recently, quote, the court shouldn't be wandering around just inserting itself into every hot-button issue in America. Especially, it shouldn't, shouldn't be doing that in a way that reflects one ideology, one set of political views uh, over another. Um, she, she went on in that, to, with that criticism. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts came back and said, all of our opinions are open to criticism. In fact, our members do a great job of criticizing some opinions from time to time. But simply because people disagree with an opinion is not a basis for criticizing the legitimacy of the court. All right. Having said all that, we are told that some of the justices can barely speak to each other at this point. I assume the atmosphere was a bit more cordial when you were uh, a clerk. Uh, sure. It was, <clears throat> it was very cordial. You know, they had lunch together as a group uh, once a week, and uh, they weren't allowed to talk about cases. They had a self-imposed rule that they, would, they could talk about their grandkids. They could talk about baseball, but uh, mm-hmm. but, but lunch was, uh, was for collegiality. And um, Yeah, so that, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in those statements, right? And so we've seen, so first it was Justice Roberts, right, who said he was concerned that people were couching their um their concerns about the court uh, in the language of legitimacy. He then had uh, Justice Kagan respond in some respects uh, by saying, well, you know, the court, it's possible for courts to bring on those sorts of crises themselves. And then you had Justice Alito um, just a few days ago also make a public statement uh, saying that it's one thing to express disagreement with the court, but he says it, quote, crosses an important line, close quote. Um, to uh, raise questions about the legitimacy of the court, uh, and so those so those are the three who said things out loud, and we don't usually see that. I mean, it's almost kind of like a back and forth where they're responding to each other in this public uh, way. Uh, I mean, it is the case that the court does appear to be in more hot button issues on a regular basis than usual. It's not just one or two. It's it feels like it's like you know all the time. There's another one that we're learning that they have granted cert on. And what's particularly remarkable about remarkable about that is that they're hearing fewer cases overall. They're hearing fewer cases than they've ever heard in the in the modern era. Um, and so, what they used to there are a lot of cases where there was a dispute in the circuits about an issue. Um, and now that feels different. It feels like they're taking fewer of those cases, and instead they're zeroing in um, on some of the most hot button issues in terms of environmental law in terms of reproductive rights uh, and so on and so forth. And voting rights, um, can't leave that one out. Um, and, and so then you layer on top of that, uh, that the, they, the way that they tend to vote matches up very, very well with the party of their appointing president. And then you add on top of that, <laughs> that it's not five to four, it's six to three. And so there's this, this dramatic imbalance that we haven't seen either in the modern era. Uh, and all of that together um, is causing concerns for a lot of people around the country. And the reason why I think the court's concerned about that uh, is that that's all it has. All it has is the faith of the public. It can't enforce its own judgments. It re- relies on the executive to enforce uh, its judgments. Uh, it doesn't have the power of the purse, right? Like all it has is enough faith from the American people to kind of push the political accountable branches 
to do what the court says. Um, and the fear is if there becomes a president who says, I disagree with that and I'm not going to enforce it, um, what happens then? Does the court have, has the court maintained enough residual faith uh, in, from the American public uh, to hold a president accountable if they did that? And that's the kind of background question. We don't know if we're there yet. Um, Kendra, uh, one of the uh, issues that uh, uh, Justice Kagan has raised, and certainly court observers have as well, is this whole issue of stare decisis, which really came to the forefront most dramatically in their ruling on Roe last year, uh, overturning what, uh, when we talk about stare decisis, we're talking about what is agreed upon as decided, settled law by the Supreme Court. And Kagan's complaint and the complaint of others who are watching this rightward uh, tip of the court is that uh, this is a court uh, that is no longer interested in uh, uh, stare decisis. They are more than willing to jump in and overturn longstanding court decisions. And, and that's contributed to this mistrust among some people. Now, of course, Republicans tend, in the polling at Gallup, are much more uh, confident in the court than Democrats are. Nevertheless, uh, pick up on what I'm asking. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think what we're seeing here is that historically the court has remained at least a few uh, steps away from the political thicket, and now the court has been acting as a political uh, entity in and of itself, ever so subtly, but on in taking on these cases that are very controversial and taking on these cases that have historical precedent. The court, in fact, is saying, we want to play ball. We want to create, I would say, new um, judicial history uh, and legacy. And so I think when you even look at some of the infighting and bickering outside of it seeming like it's a, uh, you know, a political episode of Survivor um, where, you know, these these people that we trust can't get along, I, I also think that at the end of the day, uh, this has been a long time coming. Uh, this takes me back to the Warren Court in a different kind of way. Um, again, there mm. was complaints about the Warren Court being um, hyper-political in the 1960s, and I think you could argue that this um, supermajority court um, that is uh, Republican-leaning um, is, is also being a very activist court. Uh, but perhaps when you, when you mirror that to the modernity of today's times, it's a conflict of interest. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. You mentioned the Warren Court because I remember as a high school kid, uh, you know, seeing uh, signs pop up on roadsides and in people's yards, impeach Earl Warren. Of course, coming from right wing organizations who felt that the court had moved way too far uh, to the left. Alan, did you want to jump in? Well, I was just going to say that it, uh, uh, there's no question, I think, that this this court on a whole range of issues not just the reproductive rights. I mean, the Dobbs decision was only one of a series of, of very uh, radical decisions that the court made in this last term. And there's, there's not much question, I think, that we're going to see that continue. We've got a, you know, a six-judge uh, majority on the court, uh, with only Roberts is the one that's sort of maybe in doubt on some of these issues, but not even he's in, not very much. Um, that is prepared, you know, to ignore all these concerns that exist um, um, among the public and among the court's critics and just, you know, continue making these decisions. It's like they've been waiting for this opportunity for a long time. There's, this has been a project to create this conservative majority on the court 
This is something they've been working toward. It's something that the Federalist Society has been working toward for a long time, that Republican presidents have been working toward, that Mitch McConnell has been working for for a long time. They're not going to stop. And there's no question that the court right now is far to the right of the, of the American public on a whole range of issues. And reproductive rights, not just one of them, and the you know, environmental decisions that they made also are you know, quite stunning uh, in, in, in their uh, effort to restrict the ability of the, the, the federal government to, to you know, to regu- regulate, um, you know, the emissions of, uh, you know, CO2 and other things. So it's, it's uh, but I, I don't, I'm not optimistic that this is going to slow down. I think it's going to accelerate. Yeah, and there's an, by the way, there's another uh, uh, case that will challenge the authority of EPA uh, coming up in this session. Mm-hmm. Fred, let's get to the, if you if we can to the and I'd rather I'd like to have you start it because you're the you're the constitutional law professor. Um, so one of the cases the court will hear this year um, uh, kind of goes back to the subject that we started with, which is you know integrity in elections. And uh, what what they are going to hear at some point is a case that could essentially change the way elections for Congress and the presidency um, are conducted by taking the power for reviewing challenges like the ones that we saw in the Stacey Abrams fair fight challenge, taking it away from the courts and handing it to state legislatures, giving political bodies the final say on whether elections have been handled appropriately with integrity and accurately. It is a it is a, a seismic, uh, could have lead to seismic changes in our election process uh, for federal, for president and Congress. Right, Fred? Sure. So this is going to actually mostly affect Congress. So the, the issue here is partisan gerrymandering um, and you know, other, other ways in which um, state legislatures are involved in uh, the, the, the drawing of districts. Um, so under the Constitution, state legislatures uh, can... Uh, put forward the time, place, and manner uh, of uh, elections of um, the Federal House of Representatives. Uh, and you know, that means that they draw districts, and they often draw them in very partisan ways. Um, the Supreme Court a few years ago said that it doesn't present a federal constitutional issue that federal courts can address when, uh, when you have uh, lines that are drawn in, in heavily partisan ways. And what then happened is that people raised challenges under their state constitutions and state courts. And so you've had some state courts that say, well, this violates our, our state constitution. The, Supreme Court, the question before the Supreme Court is whether or not state Supreme Courts have the authority to review challenges like partisan gerrymandering under their own state constitutions. And the theory is that, that all of that belongs to the state legislature that it actually violates the federal constitution for federal for state courts uh, to have any real say um, with respect to their own state constitution. So it's, they're, they're calling it the independent state legislature theory. Um, and, you know, it, this is something that I think just a few years ago would have been, frankly, unimaginable. Um, but uh, the fact that they granted cert on it and the fact that there are a few justices who have already expressed uh, that this is something that they're interested in uh, and the fact that they've really shown no signs lately of restraint uh, means that we may see that. It may be impossible to go to state court to raise these types of challenges. 
Uh, I, I, the, the, the gerrymandering may be what the basis is, but, but basically there are a lot of court observers who su- suggest that, um, that it is conceivable that a ruling in, in, uh, in favor of the state legislature on this could lead to setting up rules that could, say, stop a governor from vetoing election bills or a state court from blo- blo- blocking rules that set up different voting hours that might disenfranchise certain voters. So, Patricia... Um, although it starts as a, a, a you know, a, a gerrymandering bill, it has much broader implications. Uh, and we know how concerned people are in Georgia on the left about the fact that the state legislature now in Georgia has much more power over um, election procedures and can and can actually step in and take over a local election office if they feel a need to do so. Yes, exactly. Well, and I think that, you know, since the civil rights era, having a federal overlay of a state's own voting laws has been essential to people's trust in um, elections overall, because there was a sense that not all localities or not all states could be trusted to enact their own uh, voting rules and regulations and to um, and to issue those fairly as well. So it's so, so for more than you know 50, 60, 70 years, there has been this sort of balance between a higher level of oversight of other people's elections. Um, and I think the huge concern is when you get away from that, um, that you get into um, an area where people are um, in sort of the the um, uh, people making the rules for their own elections and uh, as in the case of gerrymandering, selecting their voters instead of the other way around. Kendra? Kendra? I, I, sure, I agree with everything my colleagues have said. I, I think this is this is really taking us down a slippery slope of, of federalism, right? Um, this is this is really beyond um, voting rights and, and who has control over elections to really, I think, determining who's going to to have final say um, in terms of how how states um, run their elections. For me, I think the pause in this is just what Patricia, Patricia said. And coming off of this fair fight um, law, um, lawsuit, right, I think we're going to see ourselves go into another cyclical cycle of, of people creating their own rules. Uh, again, I, I think if we were to, this is idealism, if we were to ever get to a place where in our electoral process we understood that representation goes beyond race, it goes beyond gender, it goes beyond even uh, partisanship, um, then we would really be talking about progressive politics. Unfortunately, we're not there. So I do think we still have to um, have some protections um, in our states, especially um, in the South. Alan? Well, I, I want to add one other thing about this, which is that uh, this uh, so-called independent legislature theory potentially leads to what I would consider a nightmare scenario, which is that uh, it, it could be used to justify state legislatures overruling the votes uh, of, the, of their citizens in a presidential election. Um, we saw something akin to this being advanced by people like John Eastman, uh, on behalf of Donald Trump in the aftermath of the of the 2020 presidential election, where they were ur- urging um, state legislatures in some of the swing states to step in uh, and basically um, uh, over overrule the results of the voting uh, on the ground, some specious grounds, some sort of specious uh, election uh, fraud claims, uh, and choose their own slates of electors. 
And and uh, this is you know this independent state legislature theory could be used uh, in a similar manner to allow legislatures in a hotly contested presidential election to step in uh, and you know make some sort of claim about problems with the way the election was conducted and choose potentially choose their own state of electors um, on behalf of the candidate who actually lost the popular vote in the state and and that's just I think that would that would if you think we're in trouble now, uh, I think there there would be a real crisis of legitimacy uh, in that case. Uh, Tricia, did you want to get in the last word before the break? Uh, yeah, one quick point um, that the last three justices, um, uh, Justice Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, have all been confirmed since the changes to the Senate filibuster rules, and so instead of a sixty vote threshold, those justices mm-hmm. needed a 51 vote threshold. And so that certainly that opened the door, I think, to justices who would have had a very hard time, especially in Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh's case, um, being confirmed uh, with a with a broader without a broader mandate. I think you had to really put forward different justices as a president to get to that 60 vote threshold than they're doing now. And I think the effects are um, are becoming evident. Uh, I'm getting really late for the break, but Fred, real quickly, um, uh, Alan proposes a doomsday scenario in mm-hmm. terms of what a potential ruling on this case could be. That isn't necessarily, I mean, the door could open to all of the things that we're talking about, including Alan's uh, notion, uh, but it isn't, we don't know exactly how far the court will go uh, when they finally do take up this case, and we don't know a date for this case, by the way. Right. We don't we don't know how far they'll go. I mean, I think it, it's hard if they rule uh, in favor of the challengers here, at least on things like independent redistricting commissions. I mean, I think those are absolutely out. Uh, and then we may see moments where they put in some language that says, well, this doesn't necessarily affect A, B or C. But what we've seen in the past at this court is that even though they sometimes put that language in, when A, B and C come before them, they sing a different tune. So yeah. that's the scary exactly. thing, frankly. Uh, by By the way, as we go to break, the EPA case I was talking about is the first case the court will hear when they come into session um, with Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the first black female justice uh, sworn in now and sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court. We should not forget that as we talk about all of the controversies swirling around the court. That is truly a remarkable and historical uh, moment. All right, let's get to our final break of the show, back with more on Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, uh, Brian Kemp uh, celebrates on the campaign trail uh, the fact that he was able to lure to Georgia a Hyundai uh, vehicle assembly plant and also a Rivian assembly plant. And now, in separate actions, there are at least setbacks to be overcome, uh, if not, you know, outright uh, potential for these deals to maybe not be executed in, in certainly in the way that Kemp and the and the vehicle manufacturers wanted to. So, um, first of all, let's talk about Hyundai because that plays a bigger role in the upcoming election. In the Hyundai case, uh, the climate package, which uh, Democrats primarily pushed through Congress, um, it, it eliminates the um, tax credit of some seventy five hundred dollars 
for uh, electric vehicles that are not manufactured in the United States. Um, that's an issue for Hyundai because until they build their assembly plant in near Savannah, all of their vehicles are, are, are going to be produced overseas. And now Hyundai is saying this may really make it very difficult for us to move forward. And Raphael Warnock is looking for a workaround uh, because he voted for this. Republicans are already uh, attacking him over this. Uh, it, it's a problem for economic development and jobs, first and foremost, but also an, elect, an election issue. Yeah, we have an unusual situation where a foreign auto manufacturer is also a Georgia constituent. And so those can play those can have really different um, dynamics, uh, even though it's the same company. So, um, as you said, this is a tax credit that was eliminated for anything um, manufactured or assembled overseas. Um, And it's a tax obviously would be U.S. taxpayer dollars. If that had stayed, I feel like the blowback on giving U.S. taxpayer dollars to cars manufactured overseas, you would have heard a huge amount of blowback from Republicans. Uh, But after this um, bill passed, uh, the entire delegation heard from Hyundai because they have a huge plant down in West Point, Georgia. They are now a constituent of all of these members. Um, They're very upset about that piece of it because they said, but we were counting on that tax credit. That's how we're going to be able to um, continue our own operations that will then allow us to have the money to then build that huge factory um, outside of Savannah. Um, so uh, Warnock is at least making an attempt to get a workaround or sort of a, a phasing in period of that tax credit. Um, and But it's, it's unclear whether or not the other authors of that bill are going to go along with that just for a Georgia-based manufacturer that is nonetheless a foreign company. Kendra Brian Kemp was on Fox News Sunday yesterday, and he took a shot at Raphael Warnock, essentially saying if he'd read the bill, he might have anticipated this problem. And I do think it's at least fair to ask whether or not this was anticipated uh, by uh, members of the Georgia, you know, by, by Warnock, by Ossoff, uh, in, in terms of whether or not this was going to have an, uh, be an issue for, for Hyundai. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's honestly hard hard to tell. This is um, this is a very unique situation, uh, in the sense that you you have this um, constituency that benefits the state, but at the same time, um, if the, if Warnock's um, two year uh, buy in of phasing uh, doesn't work, um, will will negatively impact the state. For me, I look at it this way. I look at it um, beyond Hyundai. What about all those Georgians who work for that plant? That if they pull mm-hmm. out, right, um, then we're, we're we're really going to look at perhaps um, an, an economic turmoil for all those Georgians. And so I, I I'm curious as to how these um, individuals that work uh, for Hyundai will will vote um, depending upon what's going to happen. And again, I think it's too early to know. So uh, it's, it's going to be really interesting to keep our eye on this. Ellen, well, I think it's a political problem for the Democrats. Um, you know, because it raises a question of uh, why they didn't anticipate this problem, at least for the Georgia delegation. You know, why didn't they anticipate this problem? But I think it's also a political problem potentially for Brian Kemp and Republicans, you know, because they've been touting this, uh, you know, plant along with the Rivian plant as major achievements. And if this falls through, then I think it, you know, it takes away, uh, I think, one one of the uh, in, in, uh, most important uh, 
you know, accomplishments on the economic front um, that, that, that the governor has uh, claimed. Well, Fred, here's what I would add to what Alan is saying. Um, The other plan, Rivian, is much more uh, uh, probably vulnerable, a vulnerable issue for people like, uh, for Republicans, for Brian Kemp, because in that case, an Okmulgee Superior Court judge ruled that the tax incentive package, and we're not going to go into the complexities of it, uh, she believed was uh, essentially uh, contrary to the laws of the state, the tax laws of Georgia. And so she's essentially put in doubt this $1.5 billion incentive package for Rivian to go through with their deal. Um, and, and that could accrue to the disfavor of Kemp because the question there becomes, why didn't they do a better job getting the local people in, that com- in those communities uh, to be partners in this whole project? Sure. Right. So both in this case and in the, the case we talked about earlier, these are there's a lot of complicated claims in this, in this one. There's like seven different claims. Um, but the judge found one of them uh, persuasive. Uh, namely, she's concerned about whether or not Rivian is sound and feasible. Um, and you know, I assume that this will be appealed. Um, but yes, so it would be from the political standpoint. Yes, this would be a big blow uh, to to Kemp and to really tell everyone who's in, invested in this, which is not just Kemp, it's, it's Democrats and Republicans who are excited about this. And it's, you know, it's people who are excited about those jobs in that community. Um, and this would be uh, a blow um, to, uh, to, to all of that, uh, for sure. Um, Alan, real quick. Well, uh, something that hasn't been mentioned so far, is at least, is that, that there's been a significant amount of opposition to the Rivian plant in the area mm-hmm. where the plant is yeah. going in. There's a lot of people who live in that in that area who are not happy about it. I uh, think it's going to permanently change, you know, the, uh, the the whole makeup of that of that community and and uh, you know take away a lot of a lot of what things that they like about about living in that area. All right, um, that's it. We are completely out of time. Patricia Murphy. A quick question for you as we run out of time. Uh, what's the likelihood we're going to run out of things to talk about on this show politically and uh, for you to write about in the five weeks until Election Day? <laughs> Bill, I never make political predictions, but I can predict there's a 0% chance of running out of things to talk about. <laughs> Early voting starts two weeks from today. The election is just five weeks uh, from uh, tomorrow. That's it for our show today. I'm really grateful for uh, having Kendra King, Maman, Patricia Murphy, Fred Smith, and Alan Abramowitz on me. Thanks for helping me uh, really put these issues in a smart perspective. That's it. We're out of time for today, but we're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and please stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>